let's give Hannah a, a applause for the good rating. Uh, well done, Hannah. You can now graduate. It was a test. It was a test, and you passed. Uh, actually, this is my test, uh, my final exams, as I complete my last semester here, and I have four more sermons uh, to preach here, so really it's my final exam, so I ask God to help me bring these final four messages to you. I also want to just uh, extend my greetings to the, the visiting scholars, and uh, on behalf of the seminary, we're so honored to have you in our midst. I want to say that uh, we often think, maybe you think that we're doing something to help you, but actually we see it as something that benefits and blesses us so much. Uh, I think about our long connection to AGST, which is a wonderful connection we've had going back uh, to uh, some years with uh, previous professors. But also, um, I, I don't know if any of y'all know this, but I'm going to finish my presidency in Taiwan at CES. And so it'll be interesting. I'll fly to Taiwan as the president of Asbury. I'll come back as a nobody. Um, <laughs> and Roji George, uh, uh, one of our remarkable visiting scholars, who I think you should know if you're a Pauline uh, student here, he's probably the most published Pauline scholar in India. And he's here in our midst, and so we're just so thankful for all of you. And I've always wanted to go to Chad, never have been to Chad. I have been to California, <laughs> but, <laughs> and uh, Taiwan, all of this. It's wonderful to have you all here. Um, of all of the wonderful opportunities that are afforded me as president, I think I want to say that uh, the greatest honor is always preaching the gospel. Uh, there's no other greater, greater honor than that. Um, to this day, my mother... Uh, refuses to write a letter to me, address it as like President Tenet, or when I became a professor at Gordon-Conwell, Dr. Tenet, always Reverend Tenet. Because she said, once you have a reverend, all, everything else is going downhill. <laughs> and she's right about that. I, I, this is the Ellsworth, Ellsworth Cowess pulpit uh, in honor of his love for preaching, and it's an honor to stand here. I will tell our students that it's a good idea to keep track of all your sermons you preach and where you preach and when you preach and what you preach. It's a really good idea. I didn't think about that until my 14th year of ministry, but I have kept track of every sermon I've ever preached in anywhere in the world since 1998. And so I can say with some authority that since arriving at Asbury's president, I have preached 926 times. Mostly around the country, around the world, uh, promoting Asbury. But also, I want to say, from this pulpit, I have had the privilege of preaching 211 times. And if I get through today, 212. Uh, this sermon, and I want to thank you, by the way, Jessica and Bob Stamps and J.D. before that for the privilege of that, uh, that gift. This sermon is entitled, Setting Your Heart in a Time of Rebuilding. What should you be setting your heart towards? That's the question I want you to ask yourself today. We're going to get some help today from Ezra, from Moses, and Paul. But I want you to ask the question, what should we be setting our hearts towards? Our central text is in the book of Ezra. And I have said for several times from this pulpit uh, that I think Ezra and Nehemiah are particularly important books for the season of history both in the culture and the church that we're currently in. 
this, we're in a season of rebuilding, a time when we are, a time where we're called for, as Ezra did, a time of remembering, a time of recalling. And I am really struck by the fact that the words rebuilding, remembering, recalling are all have a RE prefix. And so I, another habit I have is whenever you get the catalogs, either the digital alerts or the actual physical catalogs of Christian books, you know, Zondervan Baker, you know, uh, whatever uh, may be, Erdman's, IVP, academic, whatever, I always take time to go through and see which books are being published in the various fields that are represented here and, and elsewhere. And so I go through the catalogs or the online, and I was noticing, I actually, was, uh, actually saw in my own books where the subtitle was Recovering. And by the way, authors have virtually nothing to do with the choice of titles or subtitles of books. It's a rare author that gets to choose his title or her title. But I was going to think about the word, the RE prefix. And so I went through the catalogs, and I took note of all of the RE prefixes currently like out there in Christian books. Here, are the, here they are. Are you ready? Rekindling, rebuilding, recovering, renewing, restoring, repairing, remembering, revitalizing, reclaiming, and reviving. And later on, I found, uh, after my search, I found another book, Reconstructing. Now, what does that mean? What does the rise of the re-prefix mean? The re-prefix has exploded in Christian writings. It's exploded. I mean, I'm sure you can do those Google searches and figure out how it's exploded, but it has exploded. And I think it's important because it's saying something about that we ourselves believe that the church is not in a good place. We need to not just, this is not about rebuilding like, you know, walls and temple. It's about rebuilding the people of God, which, by the way, is what these books are about. We'll get to that later. So we must kind of recapture something, another reword, which has been lost. That's what the reword, that's what the reprix means in the English language. Rebuild means we start with some rubble and we rebuild something. We restore means to bring back to former glory. To remember means you have forgotten something. To rekindle means something was once burning and now needs to be rekindled or restarted again. That's how the re-prefix works in English. So it's to openly admit that we are in a reclaiming period in Christian history. We've set aside that which has been central. We have forgotten that which should be remembered. We have let something die that needs to be alive. And so these books... Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are all about that. And I think if you were to do a, a kind of general, like go out and just ask somebody, even, even in our own community, what is Ezra and Nehemiah about? I think what you'd get, if you, and I don't know, but if you, got, if you did a poll and you asked, what, what are these books about? You would say, well, you know, um, Ezra talks about the rebuilding of the, of the, of the temple and of the, the city and Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. That's okay, that's true, but I want that to be the second thing you say. Because <laughs> you actually read the books carefully, they're actually not so much about rebuilding walls and city and temple, but rebuilding the people of God. I mean, in, in uh, Nehemiah, the walls are finished by six, uh, chapter 6. Uh, the books are only nine and a half way done. 
And it's all about restoring the covenant, restoring the Sabbath, restoring holiness and purity. All that is what Nehemiah is really focused on, and we never talk about it. We just say, well, he's the guy that's in charge of the wall project. So think about this ministry time they're living in. Ezra life spans the 15 years of King Xerxes and 25 years of Artaxerxes. And Persia was the superpower of the day. And if you think about it just in your mind, okay, it's centered in what today is Iran. But the Persian Empire spans all the way to what then was India, today would be Pakistan, all the way to Italy, and all the way down into portions of Egypt. I mean, that's a huge empire. And it was, because uh, these are, this are this was Zoroastrians, and both because of their inclination and also because of the sheer diversity of this mighty empire, they were a bit more, they had to be more tolerant about religious diversity. And so as you know, King Cyrus, who spans both the Babylonian and Persian periods, he, of course, issued a decree they would go back and rebuild the temple. And of course, a lot of opposition problems. It didn't, didn't actually happen until 515 under King Darius. And so later on, Ezra and Nehemiah come, much later under Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and they're focused on reconstituting the people of God, not simply rebuilding the wall, but also the people of God. Now, Ezra, uh, it's really important because the, you know, Ezra comes after all of that early period, after the temple is rebuilt, all of that. And Ezra comes forth as a Jewish scribe and priest. Now, he had uh, been focused on teaching and training. And if you actually look at Ezra, uh, if you, and it doesn't say this in the text, but if you, we read chapter 7, but when you finish chapter 6 and you start reading verse 1 of chapter 7, you know, it's, then you read the Bible, it's just like it's seamless going from one chapter to the next, but there's a 58-year gap between the end of 6 and the beginning of 7. It did a 58-year gap. So all this previous part about rebuilding the temple and under Darius, all that, that was all done uh, 35 years before Ezra was even born. All right? So Ezra's not about that. He tells that story. But when we get here, there, you have to realize there's been a big 58-year gap. And now we're being brought into the present period, which is about focused on who he is. And Hannah was so helpful to read. I, I didn't want to exempt her from that because it's the whole ironic line. It goes all the way down from, it shows you how he's like authentic. He's done his work. And it says in verse six, he is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. That means he also came to Asbury. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It must've been back at H.C. Morrison's time, maybe a long time ago, but he came, he came to, he got a, his version of a seminary education. This is a seminary-educated person. And then verse 10 says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and laws in Israel. Now, this is Ezra's mission statement. Now, today, everybody has a mission statement. I was actually surprised to learn that, yes, even Google, secular institutes, secular groups, they don't have mission statements. Google's mission statement is, and I'll quote, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. All right, do you think they do that? My favorite, though, is Nike. 
Okay, I thought Nike was like a shoe company. No, no, no. Their mission is, I'm quoting from their own website, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. I thought it was just wear it, but it's now just, <laughs> just do it. They're about athletes, trying to inspire athletes. That's great. That's great. Everybody needs a mission statement. Well, this is Ezra's mission statement. This is his purpose statement. And I would even say to you, especially our students preparing, this is a threefold vocational statement. This is defining his vocation. It's a Trinitarian, in some ways, vocation statement that he's going to, well, we'll look at these three things he'll do in a moment. But it first begins by saying that he set his heart. That's so interesting to me that it begins that way, verse 10. He set his heart to do these three things. Now that, to me, is at the heart, if I can use the word, at the heart of what it means to be a student at Asbury Seminary. And indeed, and broadly speaking, our tradition as a whole. We've never believed that all this learning, all this instruction that you undergo is all simply a matter of the intellectual life. It's all about forming you as a person. It's about changing you on the inside. It's all about deeply rooted formation. All this is brought in together. That's what we call the Asbury experience. Think about 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes the Lord moved to and throw throughout the earth. May they strongly support those who's, who have PhD. Those whose heart is completely his. 1 Samuel 16.7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at or people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Think about Jesus quoting the passage in Isaiah 29, 13. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So if you look at these texts and look at this, the, this time when all those things were said, those three texts, this is Asa during a time of unfaithfulness in Judah. This is Samuel during the period of the judges. This is Isaiah on the verge of exile. So when you have this period of cultural instability, ecclesial chaos, institutional crisis, all these things happening across our world, it begins by setting your heart, getting your heart in the right place. I know for me, uh, and I think this is a, a good word for all of us, when you get in the ministry, you can become so tied up in your ministry, you become identified with your ministry and can be lost in it. I know for me, uh, it's very easy for me to get lost in, you know, what I do and my job, my work, my mission, all of that gets, you get lost in all of that. And one of the great gifts of God is when the Lord speaks to your heart and says to you, I love you because you're my child. He would say to every single person in this room, he doesn't love me because I'm raise money or serve the seminary or anything else. He doesn't love me because of that. Preaching sermons, he does not love us for that. He loves us because he loves us. And we have things we must do. But it must begin by saying we love because he first loved us. That's the gospel. That's one of the greatest nights I had at the, at the revival was a person who asked me uh, at this altar if God would forgive me, forgive him for not forgiving God. 
And the great news is the Lord said, yes, I go first. His love always beats us there. And then God does his amazing work. The 58-year gap between Ezra 6 and 7 is important for another reason. Not only is it a period of all this preparation, this is the gap when Ezra is being born and many men and women being born, a whole generation of being born who will go back and be reconscious of the people of God. That's the first big thing. But the second big thing that happens, this is a time of land-breaking, amazing headline news in the world. This 50-year gap is where the great Greco-Persian wars take place, of which all of this is a part. This is the period of unbelievable headlines. This is the Battle of Marathon. This is the Battle of Thermopylae. This is the great naval battle of Salamis. All this took place in the gap, and Ezra never mentions it. Isn't that great? He never mentions it. He doesn't mention that, that you know, okay, uh, let's just go ahead and put it out there. Taylor Swift came to the Super Bowl. <laughs> Let me tell you about American discourse. American discourse, uh, operate, what comes out in news, always, I think it's probably mostly always true, in like three big circles, like a three-ring circus. You have political stuff, right? Endless political stuff, wars, Washington, D.C., Trump, Biden, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot on that. Then you have another big circle, which is pop culture stuff going on. What's the latest thing? What's, you know, what's happening with whoever? You know, the Kardashians, you name it. Then you've got the third big thing, which is sports. A sporting world, okay? So think about it. Okay, so we're, okay, okay, we're seeing, uh, you know, will Caitlin Clark make her, you know, pass the all-time NCAA record? That's a big sporting news right now. But when, when you have someone like uh, the Super Bowl, the biggest event of the year, and you have Taylor Swift coming to the Super Bowl, you're interacting pop culture with sports. Wow. And then you throw in a political conspiracy that was really all about getting Biden nominated or something. Like, what? <laughs> all right. We actually had on Sunday the convergence of all three circles into one. The country must have been going crazy. Okay. Pretend that all that happened, that that Taylor Swift really did come to the Super Bowl. She really did tr kiss Travis Kelsey on the field. And it really was a conspiracy to elect Joe Biden. <laughs> Ezra never mentions it. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's so much we have to tune out in order for us to tune in. Because what Ezra, by virtue of the 58-year gap, here's all these wars going on, these Persian battles eventually leading to Alexander the Great, which will change the whole history of the Christian movement. All this is going on, and Ezra is focused on being trained and being taught and learning. He doesn't mention it. He cuts it out. Because the greater work in the world is always God's work of advancing his mission in the world. That's always the greatest story, and the news will never talk about it. It doesn't matter. God's unfolding history is always the story. And if you graduate, and I've had the privilege of going all over the world and meeting thousands, yes, thousands of our graduates involved in ministries all over the world, some in small little churches, some in large ministries, doesn't matter. They're all part of God's work in the world. And in heaven, that's the headline news. Hallelujah for that. So praise God, 58 years of silence. Okay, verse 10. 
Ezra's vocational statement is from three verbs, to study, to do, and to teach. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes in Israel. Now look at these three words. Darash, which is the word here, actually, I would think this word is really for seek. I love that. It's translated study, which is wonderful. But see, the fact that they use the word seeking God's word, it's actually reminding us from the beginning that learning is never passive. You can learn things passively. This is about seeking after the word of God, going for it, but delving deeply into it, not just for an examination or paper, because you want to be changed by it. He's seeking after God's word, and then Asa, to do it, to live it out, embody it. That's the heart of the Asbury vision. That is, that is exactly why we have Dr. Barnes here and his team. That's the reason they exist. That's why our faculty are here, to also help us in our formational life together as a community, to bring your life into alignment with what you're learning. That is the greatest gift of all, when our lives come into alignment with what we're learning and what we know. And finally, Lamed, to teach it. Again, normally it's a word for learning, translated teaching here because it's in the PL verb stem of the PL. Do you know the PL? Oh, look at this. Bill, thank God, brother. I'm telling you, I asked about the PL. I was expecting the blank face. They're like, yeah, PL. We're all over it. We're crushing it. This is an intensification of the, of the, this is like causing things to happen. All right? So in order, how do you cause learning to happen? You, you, you teach. Teaching causes learning. It's a great translation of this. He is learning to doing or to teaching. Okay? It's a very, very powerful Trinitarian or threefold thing there. By the way, this happens again in the, the passage we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You have the Shema, Hero, Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Uh, and then you have this passage, teach them diligently. Okay, I forgot now what the translation was, it was read earlier, but it was, not, it was something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't actually say teach or diligently. It's actually the word shanin for be, be, to cut, cut these into your children. And the only way to translate it is like teach them diligently. In other words, don't teach them in a surface way. Teach them down into their lives. That's what it says in Jeremiah 6, verse 7. Teach them is also PL. Praise God for the PL. How many times has the PL been preached on in chapel in all these years? Who knows? But Bill, we're here, man. We're doing it. When you walk, when you, now, if this is not formational, tell me, I want to hear an amen now from you, okay? Teach them when you sit in your house, you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. It's not just in classrooms. It's the whole of your experience here. That's what he's getting at here. Now, what's so wonderful about this text in Ezra 7.10, this with a threefold thing about studying, uh, doing, and teaching, is that this has a parallel in the New Testament. And I would say the parallel, roughly speaking, between Ezra 7.10 is our New Testament reading, 2 Timothy uh, 2. 15, where Paul says, don't get into unproductive quarreling and all of that. Fighting over words unproductively. That's what happens when you're not formed. You just become, you, once you learn things and your heart's not made right, you end up just always spending a lot of time fighting over stuff. 
because you haven't been changed by it. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's effectively the Ezra 7.10 version of it. Because Paul goes on to say, if you don't have this formation, it'll lead to quarrels and division and arrogance and, of course, ultimately false teachings. But in humility, you are rightly guiding the word of truth. He actually unites learning with humility. You see, it's all about formation. These things are always brought together. That's why our tradition is our tradition. We believe in that. Now, I want to say a word to our students who may have arrived this year. Because when I went around the country the last 15 years, I meeting our graduates, I met people who joined in the fall of 1970. And they said some version of me like, you know, I missed the revival by six months, the 1970 revival. So I thought, you know, there are people here who arrived this fall and who said, oh, you should have been here last February. This place went crazy. We had services day and night. We had lines all the way down. Of course, Dr. McCall beautifully captured this last week, didn't he? I mean, it was an unbelievable time. It was unbelievable. But I want to say a word to those who were not here then. You're, or, you are involved in the greatest miracle of all, which is not the extraordinary miracle, but the wonderful slow-motion miracle of the transformation of a theological degree. I have seen it over and over for 15 years now. People come here, I meet them, see them, talk to them. I see them three years later and say, wow, look at the transformation. I think about Emily right here, been taking notes. Emily has been transformed during her time here. So many of you look out and see you are in this transformation period. Yes, one, someone comes to the altar, gets transformed. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful, it's, a, it's the, as, as Dr. McCall said, an extraordinary work of grace. But the ordinary work of grace, that slow motion miracle, is also amazing, just as powerful. And the thing to remember about the two, while both, our, our tradition honors both of them, fair enough, we believe that God does, can do great business at the altar. We believe that. And our founder, H.C. Morrison, was a revivalistic preacher. And I don't know if the faculty know this, but when he became our first president, when he founded Asbury, when he, they were going to hire a professor, he would take the professor to one of his camp meetings, and they would thought they were just going there just to hear him preach. Ah, oh, no, he had a trick for them. When he got time for the altar call, he would call them forward. You know, hey, Dr. Bounds, come forward and do the altar call. I've heard you do a lot of altar calls. You'd be great at it. You're an expert at it. If the professor couldn't do the altar call, he says, any professor who can't do an altar call has no business teaching Asbury Seminary. What do you mean? That's H.C. Morrison. He was that way. But the point being, he, he was getting something that there, these two things go together. So if someone comes forward and, 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 and they get transformed, what happens when they get up? Let's ask that question. Hundreds of people came to the altar here, here, the gymnasium, our, our McKenna Chapel, on and on and on. What happens after they get up from the altar? They must be ta taught. They must be trained. They must be discipled. That's what has to happen. These two are not, let's just, let's just wait for a miracle. We're already in a miracle. We're always in a miracle by virtue of our learning and formation here, and that goes on and on. I'm going to close with a story from Billy Graham. God bless him. 
Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. And he was asked if he had any regrets looking back on his ministry. And I was mentioning, because I was myself wondering, what, what would he say? A person like that preached to more people face-to-face -face than anybody in the history of the world. And he said, I have two regrets. And the first one has been reported on widely, so you may remember this, but it's a real good reminder. He said, I really regret my close association with the, the presidents of the United States. I felt like, looking back on it, that it confused the purity of the gospel with Christian nationalism. Wow. That's like, he's looking back, but he's also being prophetic for the world we live in. But his second comment is really interesting as well. He said, and I, I want to read it exactly to get exactly what he said. Another great regret is that I've not studied enough. I wish, this is Billy Graham speaking, I wish I had studied more and preached less. People have pressured me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing and praying. Graham then quotes Donald Barnhouse, who was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, who said, this is Graham's closing comment, if I knew the Lord was coming in three years, I'd spend two years studying and one year preaching. Billy Graham said that. The point being, <clears throat> this is an important time that can't <clears throat> be replicated later. And one of my four last sermons, I want to be on this point, that this is a cherishing time for you while you're here to be formed and be trained so you can go out and teach and do. H.C. Morrison was the greatest revivalistic preacher of his time, but he said when he found the seminary, there's some things that only a seminary can do, and that's the truth. That's why we're here. <clears throat> so I challenge you and charge you to put Ezra 7.10 on your screensaver or whatever you do to put things on before you, because what it does is it, it starts turning these three wheels of your theological imagination, your transformational formation, and leading ultimately to your holy impartation. You can't teach what you don't know, and impartation only follows transformation. And so you must have all three of these. This is the place to fire your theological imagination. This is the place to to just work in you that formative transformation. And this is the place to prepare you for ultimately a life of holy impartation. May this help us to set our heart on this as we walk through this period in our culture in the church of rebuilding and reframing. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to close our time with this great Wesley hymn, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. And you hear about the word praising, don't think about just praising through your lips, but praising also at the desk, in the library, in writing, all that you do. Let's sing, Oh, for a heart to praise my God.